Yeah, thank you, Lulu, for inviting me and making this workshop possible. And thank you to all of you for showing up. It's really great to reconnect with some people from the Brisbane community that I recognize, to see a few familiar faces uh, from all over Australia and a couple of people from the U.S. also. So lovely to be here with you all. And as I think you all know, the theme of today's workshop is balancing effort and enjoyment. And I chose this particular theme because it's one that's been relevant in my own practice and also seems to be relevant for many of the students that I teach in different communities around the world. You could almost say it's a universal theme because it's a balance that many of us find somewhat elusive, whether we're new to practice or we've been meditating and studying these teachings for many years. And perhaps for some of us, particularly currently, we have the added stress of the COVID-19 situation. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk too much about that. If anything, I'd like today to be a bit of a break from it. But just to acknowledge that uh, as I've been teaching over these last few months, I've been hearing from some people how their response to this situation has been almost to binge on online Dharma. Suddenly there's so much available And so some people are joining every talk and every sitting group and signing up for workshops and online retreats and then finding themselves burning out with Dharma overload. For other people, it's been kind of the other extreme and they found themselves actually stopping meditating completely because it's just felt too uncomfortable to sit still and connect with the anxiety, the uncertainty, the agitation. So perhaps some of you recognize some of those responses in yourselves. And if so, I just want to normalize them. Because again, in my own practice and in many of the students that I work with, it's very common to sort of flip-flop between extremes. And I'll be saying more about all of that later. But for now, just to give you a quick orientation, my intentions for today. This morning, we're going to be focusing more on the effort aspect of the practice. And then in this afternoon, we'll be focusing more on the enjoyment part. So you'll need to hang in there through the morning of effort to get the goodies of the enjoyment in the afternoon. Now, I'm slightly tongue-in-cheek, of course, slightly joking, because actually one of my intentions for today is to try to break down that separation of effort and enjoyment, which many people tend to think of as being mutually exclusive. Instead, what I'm hoping to help us to see is that effort and enjoyment are not in opposition to each other, They actually need to be working together to support each other if this effort is going to be classified as what we can call right effort 
or wise effort. So I'm aware that all of you here on this call are experienced meditators. So as I think you all know, this term right or wise effort is referring to one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path to freedom that the Buddha laid out that encompasses every aspect of our lives. So that everything that we do throughout the day can be a contribution to our freedom, our happiness, our ease and peace. If we approach what we do with this underpinning of right or wise view, which is the first of these eight path factors. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail today about the whole of the path because that could be a, easily a nine-day retreat right there. In fact, it's a whole lifetime of exploration. But what I would like to do is give just enough context to frame today's practice. So we're situating it in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. And as I think you know, this each of these eight path factors is usually translated as right view, right thought, right action, and so on. So just to say that this word right is the usual English translation of the Pali word samma. But for some of us, when we hear samma translated as right, in English it can be a little bit off-putting because it so easily gets associated with ideas of right and wrong, good and bad, success and failure. And particularly when right appears as part of past factors such as right view or right thought, it can sound a little bit rigid or dogmatic or authoritarian. So Gil Fransdell says this word summer can also mean proper, complete, or in harmony. And he says when right is the translation, it's useful to think of it as meaning appropriate. For example, when we speak of having the right tool for a particular task. And he says because this path is made up of practices rather than beliefs, Right does not refer to truths that we're obliged to adopt or to moralistic judgments of right and wrong. So some scholars prefer to translate the word sama as wise or appropriate. So we have wise view, wise intention, wise speech and so on. So just keeping that in mind when we come to the first path factor of rise view, we, sorry, right view, we can think of it as wise view, which perhaps conveys the understanding that what we're doing here is intended to lead to insight, to wisdom. There are many different nuances to right or wise view. And it's sometimes presented as understanding all of the Buddha's teachings which might sound pretty daunting. So as a workable definition for today, I'd like to frame right or wise view as the understanding of what leads to harm or suffering and what leads away 
from harm and suffering to ease, to peace, to freedom. So with that definition, all of us here today have already been developing this path factor probably much more than we realize or we wouldn't even be here on this call. So we already have some degree of wisdom, some degree of understanding. So I'd like to jump now to specifically to right or wise effort because that is part of the focus of today's workshop. And what makes this effort right or wise is that it's applied with wisdom, with wise view. The wisdom to understand whether that effort is taking us in the direction of ease, of happiness, of peace, of freedom, or the opposite, towards more stress, distress and entanglement. So I'm pretty sure that most of us understand that, at least intellectually, but when it comes to our actual practice, it can be surprisingly elusive to find that balanced effort of not too tight, not too loose. So in my own practice, it was reassuring to hear that the Buddha himself, before he became the Buddha, also struggled with getting that balance right. As most of you probably know, according to the discourses, the Buddha-to-be, Siddhartha Gotama as he was known, he started off at one end of the spectrum between self-indulgence and self-flagellation. So it's said that he was born as a prince in northern India. And because of his social status, he was able to live a life of total ease and luxury. He was able to indulge in every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. And he did that pretty fully until at about the age of, I think, 27, he started to recognize that this wasn't a very meaningful way to live his life. And he went through a kind of existential crisis. He renounced this life of luxury. He left the palace and he went to the opposite extreme. He became a hardcore ascetic. And in this phase of his life, he spent about seven years practicing the most intense and rigorous spiritual practice that were available in India 2,600 years ago. And back then, most of these spiritual practices involved various ways of basically torturing the body with the idea that that was the way to get rid of sense desire. Now, the Buddha-to-be was a very dedicated student, and it's said that he practiced these different austerity practices pretty much until he was at the point of death. Now, fortunately for him and for us, at that point he realized that they weren't working. They weren't actually getting him any closer to his goal of freedom. And so he had a, a breakthrough. And according to the legend he suddenly remembered a pleasant memory that he'd had as a child. Back when he was about seven or eight years old, he had been, quote, sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And as a young boy, he spontaneously slipped into a state of deep concentration known as jhana. 
and this profound peace of mind was very pleasant. And when the Buddha-to-be remembered this as an adult, it's said that he woke up and not long after that realized Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So it was this pleasant memory that was the turning point for him. And the first discourse that the Buddha gave after this enlightenment was a teaching on what's become known as the middle way. And this middle way is the balance between extremes of self-indulgence on one hand and self-torture on the other. Now, I think most of us have had some experience of the tendency towards self-indulgence making too little effort. But when we hear about those extremes of physical self-torture, that might seem bizarre to us today because generally speaking, it's not part of our culture. But as Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, what is part of our dominant culture is unfortunately very common, is a type of psychological self-torture. So many of us are very hard on ourselves. We are our own worst enemies. And there's often the tendency to judge, to criticize, to undermine ourselves. So even though we might understand that intellectually the Buddha's teachings are framed around balance, the middle way between self-indulgence and self-torment, it can be particularly hard to find that balance in relation to effort. Perhaps because our dominant culture is one of perfectionism, competitiveness, striving, hyper-busyness, idealism, and so on. When we just hear the phrase, right effort, it can very easily trigger a sense of self-judgment, of not good enough, of inadequacy. So even as you're hearing this talk now, you might notice if any of that conditioning is coming up for you. This was definitely true for me early on in my own practice. Whenever I heard this phrase, right effort, I'd immediately think blood, sweat and tears. And I completely missed the right part of right effort. And I fixated on the effort part with grim determination. And that seems to be pretty common. We seem to be pretty dualistic creatures approaching a lot of what we do in this very binary way, all or nothing. And then we get caught in ideas of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. So the first thing we need to do in trying to find this balanced effort is recognize our own default tendencies in relation to effort. So I'll say just a little bit more about how these two imbalances show up. How making too much effort manifests and then how making too little effort tends to show up. So as you hear these descriptions, you might get more of a sense of perhaps what your tendency tends to be. So first the tendency to get caught in making too much effort. Uh, And we see this both in retreat practice and in our daily meditation. 
often we start off with a phase of intense striving, lots of enthusiasm. We try extra hard. We force ourselves to keep coming back to the breath if that's our object. We drag our attention back there over and over and over. And every time the attention moves, we judge ourselves. And if we're on retreat, we might start with a phase of getting up early every morning, staying up late every evening. But the tension that all of that produces makes the effort unsustainable. So at some point, we usually collapse into exhausted apathy. We're forced to take a period of recovery. And then after some time, the whole cycle starts over again. We bring grim determination back into play. We push too hard. We collapse. We recover a bit. We start again. And so we swing back and forth between these cycles of striving and apathy, striving and apathy. And this is so common that I, I call it, jokingly, the superhero to slug syndrome. Because we begin with a superhero mode where we often, out of unconscious fear, make a 110% effort with this fear that if we don't do that, we're going to stall completely and revert back to being that loathsome slug again. Which ironically is often what happens because when we exhaust ourselves in a superhuman mode, we burn out and come back into slug mode. So if you perhaps recognize this tendency in yourself, again, Try not to take it personally. Most of us are steeped in this dominant culture conditioning that values busyness and achievement and perfectionism. So it's not surprising that we would bring that into our practice where we're con constantly looking for results and getting impatient if these don't show up fast enough. So it's easy to get caught in expectations about how our practice is supposed to unfold, how it's supposed to look, what's supposed to be happening. Usually, though, what's actually happening looks a bit different from our expectations. And then the flip side of all of that comes up. We experience disappointment, self-judgment, doubt, perhaps fall into anxiety, wondering if we're doing it right, or comparing ourselves to other people, even though we don't actually have a clue what's actually going on in their minds. So striving often results in feelings of inadequacy and self-hatred. This whole cycle of feeling unworthy, trying harder, judging ourselves, and so on. So that's the tendency to make too much effort. Just to see, does anybody recognize that, at least at times? Yeah, sometimes that comes into play. And often, as I've been emphasizing, we tend to swing from one to the other. So then lack of effort comes into play. And so, for some of you, this might be more your default setting. Sometimes this lack of effort comes up as a backlash to the superhero to slug syndrome. 
So we hear about the need for effort and discipline and something in us unconsciously rebels. We retreat back into our comfort zones. Maybe we stop meditating completely for a while. Or we tell ourselves, well, I'm just practicing mindfulness in daily life. When what we're really doing is just living daily life pretty mindlessly. So there's this tendency to retreat into our comfort zones. And on one level, this is natural. It's normal to want to be comfortable. But given the choice, many of us would quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. So one Tibetan teacher complained about this with his students. He talked about how he was constantly telling them to wake up, but he said they were like marsupials. They just kept trying to wiggle back down into the pouch. And I think there's probably something in all of us that can relate to that, something in all of us that would just like to be a marsupial and crawl back down into the pouch and stay there. And some of you might even be wondering, well, what's the problem with that? Well, one is it's not possible to stay there forever. And two, even if it were possible, the downside of staying within our comfort zones is that over time they tend to keep getting smaller. Not sure if any of you have noticed that in your daily lives. But just simple things like perhaps you used to regularly take the bus to work and then one day it was really raining so you took the car and then suddenly the bus started to seem less comfortable and you find yourself taking the car more and more often, whether it's raining or not. You might see it in your meditation practice. Perhaps you decided to experiment. Instead of doing one 30-minute session a day, you decided, well, two 15-minute sessions is just as good because that's easier to fit into the day. And then somehow the second 15-minute session started to fall away and then the remaining 15-minute session turned into 10 minutes and then before too much longer, your 30-minute-a-day practice has turned into 10 minutes a day. So we might recognize that. We all have our strategies for maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And it's true that as in some cases, meditation becomes more and more mainstream. It is actually talked about as being making ourselves more comfortable. So we hear this term self-care popping up in association with wellness centers and day spas and health retreats and even meditation retreats. But what's being promoted as self-care is not in the long term about genuine well-being. It's more a short-term strategy that's closer to self-indulgence. And because it's a short-term strategy, it doesn't lead to the deepest freedom of heart and mind, which is what all of the Buddha's teachings are inviting us to develop. So the first step in working with right or wise effort is to be able to recognize our own default tendencies. Because most of us do have a tendency to 
be more to one side than the other, either to push ourselves too hard or to take it just a bit too easy. So to help us get clearer about our own tendencies, I'd like to shift gears a bit now and take some time in some small group practice to explore this together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.